Hello and welcome to the Traumanomics Podcast, a place where we discuss a wide range of topics emphasizing healing, change, and growth for abuse survivors. Drawing from personal and professional experiences, we'll discuss issues openly for those in helping positions such as parents, educators, health and mental health professionals, and members of law enforcement. This is Dr. Chris Bertelson. Chris is a survivor, educator, and author. As a teenager, Chris was a target of a notorious child molester in his hometown, a man who went on to abduct and murder one of the victims. This abduction case went unsolved for 27 years. Chris was instrumental in helping bring attention to the cases, which were eventually solved in 2016. And this is Jordan Howard. Jordan is a therapist here in Arkansas with extensive experience working with abuse victims and males in particular. In addition, Jordan works with couples and people with addictions. Together, we hope to share stories and commentary of resilience and healing in a caring and lighthearted way, bringing attention to issues of abuse, addiction, and the effects on individuals and society. Hey everybody, welcome to the Traumanomics Podcast, a place where men talk about stuff men don't talk about. Welcome back. I'm here with Jared Shirel, and we are going to start episode two of our series together going through uh, the cases in Painesville, Jared's, and the Jacob Wetterling abduction. And so in this episode, Jared's going to pick up with uh, Jacob's case and the relationship to his. And before we do that, I thought I'd just share my perspective on that, and then I'm going to turn it over to, to Jared, and he can kind of walk through his side of it. Remember, um, we've shared this before, but Jared and I didn't know each other at that time and um, certainly hadn't communicated about these cases. That wasn't even probably possible back then, pre-cell phone days, pre-social media, all of that. But I'd just like to share really quickly sort of how I found out about Jacob. Um, I, I remember the the weather was, it was an absolutely beautiful day. Um, in fall, um, October 22nd, 1989. Um, and I, you know, I don't remember, Jared, you maybe remember, but I think it was in 70s, close to 70 degrees, just a gorgeous Minnesota day. Uh, very un, unusual to be that warm. But I was walking down a street in St. Cloud, Minnesota, St. Germain, and a young woman came up to me, college-age student with these flyers, and handed me this flyer and said, a little boy has been taken. This little boy has been taken. And she shared the story. She said uh, he and his friends were riding bikes to the Tom Thumb store, the convenience store. And she kind of went through the story. And immediately I was just flooded with this feeling that it, it could have been the same guy who had attacked my friends and came after me when we were on our bicycles at different times in Painesville. And so I was flooded with this overwhelming feeling that these cases were probably um, or could possibly be related. And so um, a day and a half later, uh, I went to law enforcement. And uh, I keep saying I'm going to put that copy of that statement on the website, and I need to do that. But that's kind of the background from my perspective. And so Jared, I'm going to just turn things over to you now. And how did you find out what happened? Talk us through that process. Okay. So keep in mind that this is the longest, scariest, 
and most heartbreaking story that I know. I'm not trying to indulge you with my family hardships and the painful memories, uh, but I think it's important to understand that this story I'm going to share share with you, it develops over a course of many years. And the people I love or loved helped me understand the best way to approach every day, you know. And going back, I'd like to, before I go into uh, fall of 1989, I'd like to go back to the spring of 1989, just months after my uh, traumatic event and my life perception. It was around this time that my father uh, got his biopsy results back from a medical lab. And he, it was around this time that he had learned that he had small lumps that appeared uh, under his skin uh, on a shoulder blade. It came back positive for cancer, lymph node cancer. His doctors uh, suggested uh, that he would start receiving treatment down at the Mayo Clinic. So on top of this other traumatic event uh, that I was dealing with, our, our family was also dealing with this, uh, this onset of cancer uh, that my dad was uh, rushed into uh, chemotherapy and radiation. So it, as far as a family structure goes, it was gone. I mean, we, we would, prior to this incident, we would go to church every Sunday. We would sit down and have our meals on scheduled times. Very structured in in many ways um growing up at an early age and and until after this incident where chaos kind of controls the the structure in the family so needless to say when it came to fall of 1989 at this point in the vest the, the investigation uh, became monotonous you know 10 months had already passed there was no clear person arrested there was nobody arrested in regards to my incident and if i could add nobody had been arrested in your incident and the cases in painesville which there were i believe 12 documented 12 police reports we had given up on finding who whoever had done those those accostings in Painesville. Well, I wouldn't say given up. I mean, there are some of those victims I had spoken to is very much, very much still a part of their life. Uh, I don't mean I don't mean that we had given up. I mean that we had given up on law enforcement finding the person. Lost hope that we were going to find the person in the moment when Jacob was taken. Yeah. Because of my state of fear, I guess there was some sense of relying. I was relying on law enforcement to yeah. bring in the bad guy and, and hoping and that we hoped the, for details, the yeah. details would, would bring that forward. And, you know, whatever I'd shared with him would bring that forward. Right. Um, and we'll get and, into it. They came really close. And folks, we'll get into the frustration and parts of that later so, on. But. Yeah. So it wasn't until November... I, I, th I feel it wasn't until November of 1989. Uh, Jacob had disappeared October 22nd, 1989. A few weeks later, uh, I was contacted by my Stearns County investigators who introduced me to the FBI investigators dealing with Jacob's case at that point in time. And it, that was at, at that point in time, I had done my second sketch, a very detailed sketch uh, done by a FBI sketch artist who was flown in from Washington and I had spent I recall like 
over eight hours working on this particular sketch, but it was very detailed and it was in a lot of regards the number one sketch associated with the perpetrator responsible for Jacob Wetterling's abduction. And furthermore, uh, after being interviewed with the FBI investigators at that point in time, my case, uh, or at the point at that point in time, they referred to me as the Cold Spring boy who was abducted and assaulted 10 months prior to Jacob, was the only case that was publicly associated with Jacob's case. I mean, they were so sure of themselves at that point of the two cases being associated that they had publicly declared that uh, the two cases were associated. So just as a just as a uh, an aside here a little bit statistically these crimes are extremely rare child abductions child assaults of this nature are exceedingly rare the fact that the victims were in groups makes it even more rare in the case of the Painesville victims and Jacob kids on their bicycles more than one kid um, very very rare Oh, absolutely. And for those to occur within 20 miles of one another is is just they to, in my view they had to be related. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I just remember vividly remembering a interview with Trevor Wetterling or Aaron Larson at that point in time where they had noted that the perpetrator had told them to run, don't look back or they would or he would shoot. Similar, very, similar threats to yeah. those in Painesville and, yes. and myself. Well, and yours, and my case yes, in particular. For sure. And that being said, when the additional investigators got involved with this case, it brought up a lot. I think just a lot of unaddressed assaults that occurred in the area, and people were giving tips every you know left and right that were coming in. And, and law enforcement were, they were responding to those tips. So I'm, I'm sure it got chaotic for a lot of them at that point in time. Uh, they had never dealt with a case of this nature. They didn't necessarily have the experience to maybe address it in, in the ways that we would address it in today's world. Well, certainly the, the volume of information and data that we've all learned from these cases have improved, hopefully, um, how they're handled today, right? Oh, absolutely. So there has been a, a thorough review of my case, Jacob's case, and, and the Painesville cases after the fact. And hindsight's always twenty twenty. There, There are notable uh, details that were just simply ignored or overlooked you can call it ignorance or whatever you may want or however you want to label this investigation, but it definitely continued to take a toll on how I developed growing up or moving forward. And now, not only was I a victim of an abduction, sexual assault, I now became a key witness in a missing person investigation and exhausted a lot more time and energy focusing on what they always referred to as the necessary details and fixated on the necessary details. If I wasn't sure of something, 
then they would always have me backtrack it. It got to the point where I met with law enforcement investigators and they had questioned me extensively without my parents in the room and put me in the hot seat to determine whether or not I was lying or whether or not I was a credible uh, witness, whether or not I was holding something back or not sharing something with them. They ran me to the point where I broke down crying and I just specifically walk and remember coming out of that room in tears and my parents seeing me and noting that we were done. They were done helping. We were done helping the investigation at this point. So, I mean, so that would, um, so law enforcement, obviously today there are specialists who deal with victims. There's advocates, there's folks who take statements. You're not, you know, and I certainly hope that's. Oh, it's done way. It's, I, I've actually had the luxury of sitting right. in so, and, and, and seeing how they deal with cases of this nature. They don't take now, them to the police station today. A, no, law enforcement right? so isn't, even, there even isn't allowed in the room. Exactly. They're, they're in through maybe a see-through window. They can call the person, interviewer, the right. interviewer in regards to the questions they would like to ask the child. If the interviewer feel, feels it's appropriate, then they'll ask the question, but they have a lot more regards to uh, uh, the the victim's rights. Right, the victim world. is not to be interrogated. That's the correct, <laughs> and it's uh, not an interrogation, especially in a, a juvenile exactly uh, in a juvenile exactly. case. Uh, young children are very very impressionable, and so approximately, they a lot. Uh, so approximately, what month uh, was this interview? Uh, it was right around December. I just remember being at uh, January. It okay. seemed like, uh, and at this point, I had already done, you know, you know, seven seven lineups, two two sketches, numerous interviews with law enforcement, and then all of a sudden, not only did we move, we moved over to Painesville at that point in time, right. but um, everything just kind of went silent. There, so, there wasn't much follow-up after that. It's roughly a year. So a year from my incident, just over a year from my incident, to the time it just went silent. Nobody talked about it. Nobody. There was no follow-up or anything for many years, and I'll get more detail about it later. But, okay, so when you moved, all right, when, you're, when this interview happened in January, just to, what I'm going to do is just juxtapose what happened for me. I moved from Painesville to St. Cloud to get away from the perpetrator who had hurt my friends and came after me on two separate occasions. October 24th, I went to Stearns County. Didn't hear back from the officer that I thought I would or was told I would. And of course, as you mentioned, they were getting a lot of tips. So I went to Jerry Wetterling with my dad under the guise of a chiropractic adjustment for my dad and shared our story with him around the same time you were being interviewed. Right. And I think you've shared this in your previous podcasts. And, yes, I, and, and I a sure lot of did. Detail. Yeah. So, but in, in reference to the timeline, yes, Chris and I were walking this course in life and this is how we kind of... But uh, didn't know each other, Unknowingly right? so, intertwined... Uh, with what was relevant at, at that point. In time. So Jared moved to Painesville, and it's this is kind of a, I think it's kind of funny anyway. 
I ended up going back to Painesville, driving from St. Cloud my last year and a half of high school. And I remember walking in, um, I changed schools at semester time of my junior year. So I walked in and I saw, I don't know if it was <laughs> you or, or your brother, honestly, but I remember thinking, oh, a new kid. And then I saw the new kid again, really far away. And I was like, how'd he get that far? <laughs> that's how I discovered that yeah, you were that's twins. The manipulative nature of right, being an identical of, twin. Of being identical. So that's yeah. a whole different story altogether. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it is that. It but is. we didn't know our respective stories. That was my point, is that here we are in the same school, didn't know. We had friends together, but didn't know. Uh, right. And and yet there were law enforcement investigators at that time that were aware and were aware of my case as well. They, they definitely followed and and made note of these uh, that we that we can see in the case files. Um, so, you know, that's so you moved to Painesville and the case went silent. Uh in a lot of respect, it did. It became uh, a high-profile case, obviously, and it went from statewide to national to even international, and it got so blown up in a lot of respects that they were missing the notable details associated with our cases, and that's why, having learned this years, many years later, I experience a great level of frustration and have and understand how is that even possible like why wasn't there even a follow-up or a lot of them had retired the ones that i remembered speaking to early on in the course of the investigation they had all retired uh, you know a lot of them just don't speak about the cases that they've dealt with there were no interview no lineups of any of the painsville guys with the yeah, so I was yeah in a sense I was the only victim. You were the only one that, that was, was brought brought you know, in you were brought in repeatedly. To, None of the pains to identify the perpetrator. Right. In one specific case, the individual responsible for my abduction and Jacob's abduction, you know, by Danny Heinrich was in one of those lineups, and it was one of the last ones that I had experienced. But keep in mind, this was almost a year after the fact. After I had seen that face in the window of him giving me directions at that point in time, it was almost a year later before I had seen this guy in a lineup and had heard his voice. So although I had pointed him out in the interview, in the lineup as possibly being the one responsible for my assault, I couldn't definitively point him out right and i mean that's which is so i think there's some blame there i think a lot of people will say no 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 you don't but after 27 years i still carry some of that so one of the things that was consistent in all of the i think all of the police reports was his voice Absolutely. And and, and, and it would it have made a difference? Yeah, absolutely. I think it would have made a if, difference. If the other victims had come forward at that point in time and voluntarily done the lineup. Well, we didn't know. Some of them were still scared shitless at that point in time as well. Well, we that's know this. true. I mean, even 25 years after the fact, some of them refused to talk about it because they had put it far behind them. And there was still a level of fear or guilt or even shame to, to, to even talk to us about it. And I personally thought it was selfish because 
it wasn't about me. It wasn't about Chris, and it wasn't about the Painsville victims. It was about the missing. It was about Jacob missing right uh, for such a long period of time, and and if there was any hope at that point in time, then the time was at that point, right. and and we made that pretty evident, relentlessly pestering investigators to pick well, up on the investigation. One of the things that I've learned about you, Jared, is that you have this way of making people do things they would otherwise not do. My first interview in full disclosure was uh, as a pseudonym with my face blacked out um, because we didn't know who the guy was. I didn't want to risk that either. So mm-hmm. I, I get it. I think part of that is, you know, I talked to you about the number of years and fear and, and all that, but there was a level of hate that I developed as I grew stronger, as I grew into a man. There was a level of hate that I carried, and I was prepared. Like, if at that point, when I was, a, you know, my young 20s, if that if that individual had, if, had approached me at that point in my life, I was prepared to defend myself. I was prepared to fight back, and I wasn't going to be a victim at that point. But it's a much different state of mind when you're only 12 years old and you have very little control over the, you know, the adult. A grown man. A grown yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. Threatening you. Yes. Absolutely. Threatening you. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I just hope that this helps some people understand uh, things that I don't expect them to understand. I hope this kind of puts things in a better perspective for anybody listening, why things didn't work out the way they should have. Well, and I think they, I think, and one of my goals for you and I talking is, is to get people talking and for men that have experienced things like this, who can't talk yet, at least maybe they can listen. We've always said that. So it's a, we hope that it's a way strength through vulnerability absolutely Um, and vulnerable i mean uh, just one more final note before we end this little series or tidbit it is about that point in time it was you know just shortly after i'd moved to painesville it was i think a spring of 1990 patty wetterling had gone on uh, her crusade in hopes of finding jacob and she had come to painesville high school to speak to the children in the audience about the case and unbeknown to me or unbeknown to her at that time I was in the audience and remember her remember her speaking about this very traumatic event that she had experienced and I was so new to my trauma as well two different sets of trauma uh, mine more so a, a childhood traumatic event Patty's an adulthood traumatic event and our families both of our families were still struggling with a lot of the details and the mystery of the person responsible for destroying our family structure patty was very inspirational at that point in my in my life and i have told her so so awesome well, we will pick up here with um, the intervening years, uh, which we know were quite a few, and with a couple of in- investigations in between. So we'll pick up right there in our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.
This podcast is made available by Upstart Resilience, LLC, for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the subject matter. This podcast is not designed to give specific professional advice. By using this podcast, you understand that there is no counselor-client relationship nor any other professional relationship between you and the hosts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent professional advice from a licensed professional in your state.